Hi everyone. I don't have a story today because our topic is a little complicated. So I just wanted to start with a note about our content and how we've approached this episode. We're talking about private property and how this has been used to control and impoverish particular groups of people throughout history. Specifically, we are focusing on North America and the United States. As such, we will be talking about American chattel slavery and the history of violence and conquest against the indigenous peoples of North America. This is not an easy topic, and we of course have not covered everything. We are also not indigenous people ourselves, and certainly make no claim to speak for any of the First Nations on this continent. We hope that this podcast can be a space to start a historical conversation about the history of property as a tool of oppression throughout the world and how we can move forward from this model to a more equitable future. We thank you so much for listening. We're very excited to learn with you. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Hey guys, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. I'm Sonia, I'm doing my PhD in medieval history. And I'm Devin, and I have a master's in American history and indigenous studies. So last time we talked about midsummer and the rituals around the use of land and the fertility of the land and that sort of thing in uh, past agrarian societies. And this week we want to take a deeper dive into something that a lot of us take for granted, which is the privatization of property. Now, this, to be clear, private property is not just, like, all the stuff you own. Like, you know, that's personal property. So, like, your toothbrush or, like, your couch. Whereas when we're talking about private property, we're talking about in terms of, like, land. Um, So, like, who owns the land, who gets to make decisions about that land, and most importantly, who gets to use that land. And until quite recently, it was very, very normal for a lot of land to be held in common, right? So people had different, even if you didn't say own that land, you would still have rights to use that land or to use certain parts of that land. And we would just want to talk today about how that changed, why it changed, and how this sort of ties into what we were talking about last week with these ideas around the communal use of land. Right. And in particular, we're going to be talking about North America and how the Euro-Western states in North America use private property as a colonizing force as they moved westward. First, Sonia is going to explain how this developed in European culture so that we have a context for moving to North America. All right. So basically, we don't want to take up too, too much time with Europe. 
So I'm just going to give this like the the quick crash course version of like the Middle Ages and early modern Europe. <laughs> so Sick. most of <laughs> most of the Middle Ages in Europe, so like around, I don't know, like 500-ish till about thir- the 1350s. It's a long time. You've got, <laughs> you have various ideas of land ownership, right? So maybe you are a yeoman who like owns the land that you work, or maybe you're a peasant and you're working on the manor of your lord. But in all of these cases, you would still have access to certain common land, right? So there was this thing called literally the commons. It's land that anyone could use to go and graze their animals. You could also typically would have some fishing rights and you would also have certain rights to use the woodland. Uh, so for things like collecting collecting wood or maybe foraging for mushrooms, uh, you could take your pigs into the forest because they'll, in the autumn especially, graze on all the acorns and that sort of thing, right? So basically for a very long time in Europe, you have a situation where people have access to these common resources. So even if you are somebody who's poorer, you would still be living somewhere like in your little cottage or in some sort of a small house. Um, You would likely be working on a manor or otherwise working uh, to cultivate grain with other people in your community. And you would get a certain, you know, get to keep a certain percentage of the grain And you would also have a little plot of vegetables that you would keep around your own home. Uh, You'd maybe have some animals that you could take to graze in the commons or in the woodland. You could access things in the woodlands and, you know, fish or do some small amount of hunting, uh, depending on seasonality and time and place and that sort of thing. But basically, the idea is you have... A situation where even the poorest people are able to sort of scrape by, right? Like they're able to get by, they have a house, they have food. But that all really starts to shift after the Black Death. So mid-14th century, Europe's lost about half their population. In Eastern Europe, what you end up seeing is a huge crackdown in terms of um, like the control of the peasantry and you see this rise of serfdom uh, basically because large landowners go oh i've just lost like half my peasants i'm going to really really crack down on making sure that my peasants who are now serfs stay on this land whereas in western europe you end up seeing especially in england a lot of bargaining power for a while where peasants are able to negotiate for better treatment, right? Maybe they get access to better land, they get paid more, they get a better standard of living. But this in turn ends up driving up the price to have workers on your land. And what a lot of wealthy people in England especially start doing is saying, well, it's no longer that profitable for me to grow grain and have all these peasants that I have to pay and, you know, keep up a house and whatever. And instead, they start the process of what becomes known as an enclosure, 
where basically they put up literal fences and hedges and enclose the what used to be the common land. They drive all or at least most of the peasantry off of their land that they would have been farming for like generations at this point and say, instead of growing wheat and other types of grain, I'm going to use this as grazing land for sheep because sheep are very profitable. You can sell the wool at an enormous profit and you only need to hire like, you know, three shepherds as compared to keeping on, you know, a hundred peasants. So you end up with this situation, I mean, it's a, it's a slow, gradual process, but by the 16th century, it's really going full force, especially in England, where you have a lot of people who have been driven off of their land, and now suddenly uh, widespread homelessness is a thing for the first time. And you end up with a situation where you have a lot of what people, what, what were called at the time, vagrants. So they were people who were homeless, who were landless, and they would basically go from village to village, town to town, looking for work, working for, you know, looking for some sort of wage labor where they could at least earn some money to buy food because they had been cut off from the use of the land. Uh, so they could no longer, you know, subsist on the land as they had before. And there were to an extent, some um, policies put in place to try to mitigate this. Um, like you'd have the poor laws and that sort of thing. But overall, there was this big shift of... It, it, it went from a big shift of in the Middle Ages, there was more so a view of poverty as something that was unfortunate but it was something that befell people and it was your duty to take care of those people if they fell on hard times. And then in the 16th century, we start to see a shift towards viewing poverty as being the result of moral failing. Like this idea that you are poor because you are bad. And only, you have to basically prove that you are the deserving, in air quotes, poor, in order to access any help. So, you know, orphans would be considered the deserving poor. But if you were, you know, an able-bodied adult, then, I mean, you were basically seen as not deserving of any kind of help. And I mean, basically told, like, you should just go find work, which great, that's super helpful to someone when there's just no work available. What you end up with is a enormous spike in homelessness and a landless, permanently impoverished class of people. And they end up, in many cases, flocking to the cities, hoping to be able to find work, uh, or at the very least being able to beg on the street for money and maybe get some charitable you know, get, get someone who will give them some charity. And this ends up leading to situations where um, a, lot of, a lot of the wealthier people start to become very upset and concerned by this because they say, well, why do we have all these, all these poor people who are homeless in our cities now? Why are they all over the place, you know, begging for money all the time and, you know, not, not being productive? And then... 
you know, um, they basically get the idea that, hey, uh, we've recently realized that there is, you know, a landmass across the Atlantic Ocean. Let's let's do settler colonialism because we can, you know, get rid of a bunch of these, quote, vagrants and have them live over there instead. And that's basically where you get a lot of the drive to get people out of England and into colonial North America. But yeah, so of course this is a broad generalization and there are people going to the quote-unquote new world for all kinds of reasons, um, for example, religious persecution and that sort of thing. But there is a big drive of landless, homeless, impoverished people in England especially to go to the new world because they see it as a chance for them to have a more stable and more economically um, plentiful life. And there's also quite the push from people who have wealth and power to say, hey, we can get rid of all of these, you know, extra people by just shipping them over there where we don't have to worry about them anymore and they won't be that you know they won't be messing up our nice cities anymore and i i do just want to add that this is not i am not saying any of this as um wanting to exonerate the settlers of what they end up doing um but more so putting this into a broader perspective of why things happen the way they do and we do want to talk about how we end up seeing cyclical violence in that the being forced off of your land was something that happened to um, less powerful impoverished people in Europe and that a few generations later they are doing these the ancestors of these people are doing the same thing to indigenous people and it how this privatization of property just leads to cycles of violence but we're going to turn it over to devon now to talk about what actually happens when all of these settlers show up en masse to the americas right um so i guess the first things first is that like they, they didn't really show up on mass, <laughs> um, but like we can start talking about that. So like the we have the super early settler period um, of the 1600s, right? So there's okay, about a yeah. hundred years of you know Columbus discovers the Caribbean essentially uh, and wipes out an entire people in very very little time. And then, you know, European countries start to figure out that all of North America sort of exists. But it takes a while for this idea of, like, actually wanting to build real colonies to become a viable thing. Um, And in the early settler period, the idea that we have of settler colonialism is not really what was going on. 
Um, I think in a lot of cases, when we talk about the early um, colonial periods, there is not enough agency given to indigenous people in these situations. Um, And you can look at, for something close to this, but in a much later period, Richard White, or for something in the Arkansas Valley that has a sort of similar relationship context, um, you can look at Kathleen Duvall in The Native Ground. Essentially, these are small, small groups of people from Europe coming to North America. They have no idea what grows here. They oftentimes, like, don't know how to grow food or how the seasons work. There's, like, much more drastic seasons and humidity and stuff in North America. The food and things that were grown in England, in France, just don't work in North America. The European people were almost entirely dependent on the indigenous people. It was either, you know, indigenous people were helping them, were trading with them, were just simply giving them things so that they didn't have to watch these sad white people die, or Europeans were breaking into stores and, like, stealing corn and stuff from indigenous people. Um, That's... A lot of how, like, the early Puritans lived was just I mean, stealing corn. Yeah, that sounds about right. Jamestown in Virginia is a notable example of, like, utter catastrophe. Um, so, you know, these are, this was, it was a, ba- a bad time was had by all the white people for a long time. But what ends up happening is along the coast these settlements sort of take root and this idea of individuals owning land is brought over with the Puritans specifically, but also with in the South uh, with these like large settlements that crop up on the coast uh, where you get the sort of plantation culture that develops. And essentially what happens is, you know, you have a planter class and a mercantile class in the north that develop in terms of history really quickly. So yeah, so this um, planter and mercantile class develops in terms of history like really quickly in North America, fueled by textiles and food production that's being sent back to Europe, and by the development of the transatlantic slave trade and indentured servants from Europe. So those are, in terms of the, the in terms of what's going to happen as we move west towards the conflicts that we sort of culturally know with indigenous people, the indentured servants, convicts, and like indebted people who are essentially sent to the Americas are what's going to be sort of really important, and this planter class and the planter class's fear of their slaves. So it's a a very, like, complicated cultural thing that's happening there. But you have very clear class distinctions that develop in North North America, in the the Euro-Western North America. And I'm going to clarify that term. And that is the term that's used in Indigenous studies to talk about what we know as the United States and Canada. So Western in terms of 
Western Europe culturally because this isn't just like white people necessarily you know like it's this whole culture of the state that becomes the U.S. and Canada that we're going to refer to as Euro-Western as opposed to like indigenous Western um, because there are indigenous people on every continent so that's what that term sort of refers to but so as these early settlers you know accumulate land and wealth and build plantations the population along the coast starts to really explode and the way that you got land in North America was state regulated right so these were colonies so you were essentially given land grants by the British at that time yeah so it was land wasn't really like it wasn't a it's not like a fungible asset like you can't buy and sell it or trade on its worth or anything like that like what land is worth is the what it can produce yes which becomes a little complicated when you have more and more people not just like being born into these systems but coming from Europe seeking like space and land and you know a place to you know serve out this debt and then you can get your own land that you wouldn't be able to get in Europe right um so the the issue that happens there is that you have the rich euro western planting mercantile class right in the south right where you have the big plantations in the north it's the merchants who are shipping the um raw goods back to europe so those are the people that become like the founding fathers you have jefferson and washington with those big plantations um and who else is in who's in the north that has the is the mercantile they're all like lawyers and stuff up north working with the shipping trades you know uh adams and all of them so they are that class and then you have this very distinct other class of euro western white people that were either just very important very poor or were indentured servants and now have freedom and they're trying Mm -hmm. to move to a place where they can essentially like claim land by being there because in some times if you just like if you had agriculture on a land on a piece of land then it was easier for the crown to just say yeah sure you can have that than try and kick you off or deal with the indigenous people there they would just be like yeah that's yours but as 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 this sort of flood west became more and more violent and just like this huge massive movement um the indigenous people specifically in like the appalachian west were like no so we're looking there that's the seminole in florida the creek in Georgia, Cherokee, and North Carolina, Tennessee, all the way up through the Haudenosaunee, Iroquois, Six Nations in Canada and New York. This is all of these territories. And essentially the British, there's all of these, like the taxes that everybody knows about, right? Like the Stamp Act and all these things. But also one of the major issues that 
the revolution was really about was that there was a proclamation that the the crown said everything that is right now indigenous land is their nations okay and we're not going to give anybody grants in it you're not going to be able to move west of the mountains essentially everything west of the mountains is not british and that really upset everyone <laughs> east of those mountains all of the Western people the colonists were upset about that one because like so the planter class is always looking for more land more viable land one for their own use but also to like get these poor white people out away from them and get them happy and stable enough that right. they're not going to you know have a peasant revolt right and even worse join with their slaves and have a peasant slash slave revolt because you have to realize like the this upper class this mercantile class was really mm. small in comparison to the amount of people who were like just scraping by and or were enslaved so like their worst fear is for poor white people to join up with the the enslaved african americans and essentially overthrow the order in these new colonies that was like the main fear so then when we look at what happens why the revolution happens it's really about land rights and how land that was not the founding fathers to distribute was going to be distributed so that's how we can like you know sort of move forward okay so while all this is going on with the white people basically um <laughs> Do you want to ask what is going on with the indigenous nations? Like how how are they responding to this as it progresses? Because we're talking about a long time period here. Like we're talking about everything from right. like the 1500s straight through till like 1776. So what what's going on there? Right. So we're also talking about the entire east coast of north america um all the way sort of into the great lakes area by this period too like this is i mean we're we've got upper and lower canada happening and we've got like all the states in the over this period right, right? so like obviously at the time of the revolution it's mostly just quebec but like the, these are radically different cultures and like multiple different nations that are encountering these colonists so the first thing that happens obviously is like these periods of plagues so a lot of nations are just entirely wiped out i mean not entirely wiped out but like decimated by plagues oftentimes 10 to 15 years before the first colonist ever encounters that nation right so if you look through the sort of stories the history the the oral history of indigenous nations further to the west like into the appalachians um you find like these stories of plague and death and like these haunting times oh. almost a full generation before colonists even arrived so you have like this 
horrifying thing that happens on the East Coast, especially in like Massachusetts and there in Acadia and stuff with the Mi'kmaq and the Massachusetts with the Wendat and in like the Carolinas, the Catawba and the, I mean, that's even pretty far West, but the, what becomes mm-hmm. the Lumbee Nation, um, the Lumbee Nation is is a nation that has existed post-contact. So essentially what happened was there was multiple nations there, parts of the Tuscarora, um, some Creek, Catawba people, but the, the communities that were living there were decimated by plagues, and then there was issues of white settlers moving into the Carolinas relatively quickly. Um, and these communities sort of coalesced and also allowed colonists into the communities. And oh. that culture coalesced into what became the, the Lumbee. And so you have communities like that throughout the sort of like middle coast as well. Um and it's this massive cultural shift that happens for indigenous people. But they're also fighting wars or, um, you know, you have the King Phillips Rebellion. You you have all of these, like, that one, they're, they're fighting back or trading or trying to make agreements, um, traveling to Great Britain to be like, what are you guys doing? Um, writing to the kings and being like, hey... We live here. This is ours. Please <laughs> stop shooting yeah. at us um, and just take the furs. You know, so there's like this this complicated thing of like where the the colonization is also very different depending on where in the coast you are and how sort of productive the soil is too, and like what people are getting out of it. So like in you know sort of what at that time would be northern Quebec great but not that far north because people weren't that far north yet but you know in Quebec like it's almost exclusively a fur trade and the people the indigenous people there are just like yeah sure these people want beavers like great <laughs> give them beavers they, there's like six of them whatever but you know you go further south and they're building plantations and all these things and trying like these poor white people that are like moving into the mountains and my main focus like with my research was in Cherokee so I can talk specifically about the Cherokee Nation uh, more so than I can about um just others um some I will need to give some notes (laughs) before (laughs) I get into all of that some some disclaimers um but we can we can sort of focus all of this on on the the Cherokee Nation and their interactions with the states of North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and then what become, or the colonies of North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia, what become the states, those states, and then what becomes the U.S. federal government, because that process, their process of interacting with these colonies, then these states, and the federal government really becomes this landmark for what the new U.S. is going to use like uh, sort of across the board and it becomes sort of this mark for Canada which is trying to keep pace going westward with the U.S. so that the U.S. doesn't get uh, um, any further north right 
Right. So there's, there's these okay. things that are going on. Um, it's also yeah. Cherokee, they're dealing with just those states and the U.S. federal government. Whereas, like, if we were to look in New York at, like, the Iroquois, the U.S.-Canada border goes straight through the uh, Six Nations territory. So that makes it even more complicated. Um, if we're looking for one, like, source, uh, Cherokee is a great place to start. Right, so we're going to be using this as sort of a case study. Yeah, yeah, my, as a reference yeah. point. Because it's, I mean, like, we're looking at hundreds of individual cultures, people moving, various nations, and various time points at when they encountered colonization. Because it's, you know, one of those things where as you go west, the, the time period, the, the ta- temporality, like, sort of shifts, right? So California has, like, Spanish coming up from the south at the same time that like we're moving west but right the plains the great plains all the space texas mexico it's much more complicated over there and the the time frame is very different so we're looking at like what the how this concept of private property was used by the north american state we can really see that in how the the really see how the s- federal state of the United States of America really used this tool of private property to colonize from coast to coast with what they developed in their engagements with the Cherokee Nation. But to do that, we have to go back to the American Revolution. <laughs> All right, let's let's all rewind and start. All right, Devin, tell us about the American Revolution. Okay, just the whole thing. Uh, yeah, just, well, I mean, listen, I'm, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna come out as a, you know, a, a Canadian on this episode. Revealed. I know <laughs> a real Canadian. Uh, so I'm not gonna lie, my knowledge of the American Revolution is like people got mad. They threw a bunch of tea into the Boston Harbor. Then a war happened, and then George Washington became president. The end. Like, I don't know. Um, so we, we really skimmed over a lot of it. So let's just yeah, those are let, the, let, let's those assume are the big, you're talking to me. <laughs> those, are, those are the big highlights. Sweet. <laughs> we did it. Um, and we're not going to talk specifically about, like, like, when we talk about, when I say that, like, we have to talk about the American Revolution, what we really have to talk about is, like, why the American Revolution? Um, and then, like, how did that impact the Constitution? That sounds great. Rather than, like, to learn. what actually happened in the, in the so-called revolution, because, uh, that just is it not doesn't really doesn't really matter doesn't, it's mostly about like for our purposes here today it's mostly about why the american revolution and how the constitution and then All right. the effects on how people own property and what that did um, in creating the colonizer state that we now know as the united states of america all right. Yeah. So, 
tell us, why did the American Revolution happen? Okay, cool. So this is just going to go back to what I referenced before, which is that there were quite a few things, but in terms of private property and colonization, what we can focus on, because there were... This was... The, the United States War for Independence was part of a larger global European conflict. Right. What is that noise? That is an airplane. Uh, apologies. <laughs> I am in a noisy location today. Okay. Please forgive it. That's why I was just like, Please Whoa. forgive me. Um, okay, so... <laughs> what was he saying? Um... Right, so for the purposes of today, when we talk about the American Revolution, we're going to be talking about these specifically American land right issues, um, because the U.S. War for Independence was part of a larger, sort of more global European conflict. Um, that, okay. Yeah, which was why, so like there's like these, these colonizing wars, battles that are happening, you know, sort of between these European countries across the world. They're just going into everybody else's house and being like, this is mine now. And then somebody else is like, nah, this is mine. And it's costing them a lot of money. And so there's that's where the whole issue of like the taxation comes in. But what is also a major factor in this for specifically the planter class and the, the, the rich people, for the rich people in North America, uh, one of the things they're very, very worried about is being able to move westward and to buy and sell land. So what is actually, you know, if we're going to say that the American Revolution was revolutionary, what is revolutionary about it is really how land becomes real estate. Right? Okay. Um, so... Before, right, we talked about there were these land grants, and then there were the poor people that all the rich people were afraid of trying to move west, and that the those people moving west, they're it's called like the squatter movement. Um, some of them end up becoming regulators in the Carolinas, but essentially they're just hanging out on the land until the state will recognize that it's theirs. And help them defend it from the scary native people. Because that's a thing that people thought. <laughs> um, yeah, that sounds... Uh, yeah. Yeah, but so what um, What really starts to happen, and I can have a little, a little quote here from our very own Alan Greer. Is that like so? Three things happen with the American landed property that creates the new American state. Um, so, first was that the last, this is the quote. <laughs> quote, first, first of all, the last quarter of the 18th century witnessed indigenous dispossession on an unprecedented scale involving mainly the Trans Appalachian West. Second, a real estate market formed very rapidly, making land a fungible asset as never before. Third, and finally, the ideology of private ownership took hold of the national imaginary. Okay, so basically this is a time when 
indigenous people are being driven off their land so that Europeans or people of European descent are able to go in, buy that land, and for the first time they're using it as like a liquid asset, basically, yes. where they can buy and sell it for cash. Yes. Rather than like owning it and speculate be- on it. Okay, so it's really that's when we see like a real estate market start. Yes, and so that's that's sort of what comes out of the American Revolution, and you can see it written into the Constitution and the power that owning that land gives to people. Um, You there were land requirements for every part of to like be a member of every part of government. Um, Oh, and essentially, what if you look at the way the Constitution is written? I can maybe find a quote from Howard Zinn here because uh, which will probably be quoted from somewhere else because this is a tertiary source in the people's history of the United States so it's sort of like a little mini textbook yeah well it's not mini it's like a thousand pages but it's really good if anybody wants to start learning about U.S. history um if you want a really great tertiary source on this period um and all of United States history. Um, you can look at Howard Zinn. He has a really great chapter that talks about this development of this like real estate, how it is really part, the, the power of land ownership is really part of the foundation of the American state. Um, and that they sort of wrote in just enough upward mobility and stability to really keep, keep a solid what would become the middle class between these wealthy elites who had the power of the government, right? Because you had these land requirements to be a member of government. And then you have this like middle class of happy enough white people, white men specifically. And then you have the very poor and the enslaved. And so like you need that buffer class to like maintain stability of this very capitalist, real estate driven plantation driven society right right Um, so right from the beginning land ownership from the beginning in america is tied into this idea of like the american dream like yes we're seeing it that early yes okay yeah it is it is foundational to the idea of what the united states is and would be and will be Right, but it was, for most people, going to be this, like, aspirational thing. Oh, yes. Because most people weren't going to be able to own land still. Well, so, the the thing is that at the end of the revolution, right, the, the new continental government had essentially run itself wildly and incredibly broke. For most of the revolution... So if you look at, like, the the number of men per capita who served in the revolution, it is astronomical. It's like most white men served in the Continental Mm -hmm. Army if they didn't flee for Canada. Yeah. But they did not serve for very long. It's these short stints where they were like, okay, I guess I'll do this now. Because very early into the war... The Continental Army stopped paying people and were essentially giving them, like, IOUs 
that like, well, if you do this and we win, then like eventually you'll have money or land or something. We'll give you something. Um, so they were just like out and they were like printing this weird paper money that was like entirely valueless. Like they had gotten themselves into this like pickle um, mm-hmm. and didn't have like cash assets when they became a country. Okay. And so, but what they did have was a lot of land, and especially in the South, a lot of rich land, soil that could grow stuff. And so they were like, we can just use this to like speculate on and get cash and to pay off people, like individuals who were owed something by the government. Um, Essentially, they just took over writing the land grants. For these people who were squatting right and that's what really becomes an issue with the cherokee nation because the cherokee did not have the same concepts of land ownership that this new real estate driven american state did okay so how does this all shake out when we're looking at as we were talking about before, the Cherokee Nation, because I'm assuming their idea of land and ownership is going to run quite different to, like, early America constitutional ideas of land and private property. Yes, it is wildly different. Um, And as we get into talking about the Cherokee, how the Cherokee existed as a nation, how they thought about land and property, all of these things... I'm going to throw out some big disclaimers and qualifiers. The first being that I don't speak Cherokee. So all of the words that I will be using, including the word Cherokee, are anglicized and or otherwise butchered versions that have just sort of become what is the common usage um, among people outside of the nation. Right. This is really just with everything there, much like Iroquois and Creek. Anyway, so I'm using Cherokee. I, it's the one that I can say because <laughs> I don't speak Cherokee. Um, the other thing is that I am going to use the closest terms that we have in this so the other thing is that we're speaking yes. english and using any european language to talk about indigenous communities and cultures can be really difficult because you're working in a european framework right the the language develops along with the people and so it can only express ideas and concepts that exist within that yes, culture that and community sense. right so like when we're going to talk about Indigenous statehood, their nationhood, property rights, all of these concepts are just rough approximations of what's actually happening. And it's the best terms that we can use in English to talk about these things. And so I'm going to use the the terms and the words that Indigenous people writing in English are using to talk about this in like the, the field of indigenous studies. This is the closest that we can get, and it will always be an approximation. Okay, that makes sense. 
especially because these were these aren't static nations either and Cherokee concepts and language has changed just as America and English, French, all of these other languages, Spanish spoken in North America have changed and those cultures have changed. So have the indigenous communities. So we're talking one about a super specific time and two using a language that is not going to adequately convey what's actually happening. Noted. So those are some things. Um, yeah. <laughs> but we can talk about, you know, we can get as close as we can to explaining Cherokee society and property relationship concepts in English. Um, first of all, by saying that Cherokee was a pretty big nation in terms of the East Coast. They, the original Cherokee, like, <laughs> original, that's another issue. So, uh, at this period, the Cherokee Nation um, extends from sort of like Western Virginia, Western North Carolina, Eastern Tennessee, down through a large portion of Northern Georgia. Um, they're bordered by, if you are from any of these states, uh, the Catawba in North Carolina, um, the Tuscarora in parts of Virginia, the Creek or Muskogee in um, parts of Georgia, and the Seminole in Georgia, Florida area. Um, that's sort of the area that they're looking at. Um, they're a highland nation, so it's almost all up sort of in the mountains, except for parts of Georgia, which is still sort of mountainous, but um, we'll get into what goes on with Georgia um, in a little bit. It was also very decentralized. There's these small communities sort of all around that have their own internal governments and systems of operating within their towns that are in relation to the other parts of Cherokee. And they can call, you know, like these large councils between all of these sort of like townships, essentially, to make larger, you know, sort of national statements as like the nation of Cherokee. But the idea of the nation is very different from what the idea that Europeans have of the nation at the time. No, even a township council cannot compel a single Cherokee person to do anything okay. if they don't want to, right? You cannot compel anyone into war. You can't compel anyone into conflict. You can't compel anyone to do anything. What you can do is remove community support from okay. them if they're not willing to go along with it. But you can also just go to another town if that town's not doing it. And, like, it's the, the binding force is cultural, historical, linguistic, and, like, on these sort of uh, like historical agreements between these townships that, like, right. they are all one thing. And the system of matrilineal clans. They did not have private property, mm -hmm. as we talked about at the very beginning, right? The land was not owned by one person. And 
uh, some people had like really permanent settlements, some moved within a range of areas uh, for agriculture versus hunting in the winter. Um, mostly it was like more settled than like we would think of the plains but and any of your personal property was inherited matrilineally through your right and just to be clear clan. personal property would refer um, to things like clothes the, or... the house okay so a house the actual count. structure of the house um but not necessarily the land that it's on okay so like the land that it's on is owned by the whole co- it's like owned by the whole community but like you have your house and your house is on it and like you can put up a, a fence like the the fence would be like a practical thing is like I don't want these rabbits to eat this thing that I'm growing okay you know? rather than like and then like everything that's everything here. that's in your house so like if a man and a woman got married they built a house they put all their stuff in it, they had some kids, and then they decided that they didn't want to be together anymore. The woman would kick him out, and he could take, like, what was on his body, but not any of the stuff, not the house, not the kids. Those were all hers, and that was all part of her clan, and he had to go back to his clan. Okay. And figure out what to do. Right? Yeah. She controlled the stuff. Women also were in charge of agriculture. Um, and, like, a majority of the food production that men were hunting and making war or peace. Mm-hmm. Um, that was sort of, like, the, the division of labor there. So all of the sort of stuff was yeah. controlled by women. But the land is mutable, right? Because, like, that's also being dealt with as like the seasons change and with conflicts with uh, you know the Muskogee to the south you know like if there's a conflict there like that border might change and like generally men were dealing with that though there were um powerful elders who were also women it's much the roles and all of this ownership idea is like much more fluid and communal than what has developed you know a hundred miles east of them in charlotte you know right yeah (laughs) so that's sort of what we're coming into when these white settlers start moving on to the land on the eastern border of the Cherokee Nation and just, like, setting up shop and starting to, like, attack any Cherokee people who come in and being like, why are you here? And the that's when you get the real conflict between the U.S. state, because, like, by this point in time, when you have the real, like, squatter issue with the Cherokee, the U.S. is a state, um, and they're having to deal with what the, the Cherokee had thought was going on because they had you know agreements with great britain there was the but so like now you have the the u.s state that is gonna have to deal with these individuals who have just sort of moved west said it's theirs and 
are now asking the state to protect them from being attacked by Cherokee people who are like, this is not yours. So like there, there is the concept of like property ownership in that like this community owns this and you can't just come on here from outside and live on it. Yes. Like it's not that kind of like, you know, hippie summer of love kind of like, yeah, everybody come to our commune. It right. is so theirs it's, it's and you have own... to be a part of the community yeah. and like do the work to join the community to take part in like the benefits of the land and community there right i'm using community like 15 times Mm -hmm. right so it's not any one individual person owning the land but it is like the community itself is still its own sort of entity so people outside of that community cannot just sort of show up yeah and so then okay so that makes sense yeah so as you get to this period of the the early republic is that the squatter issue has sort of, like, come to a head. And the right fledgling federal government is gonna have to do something about it. Um, because these white people, these new Americans, are moving out there and saying, like, this territory that I have fenced in is mine. It is mine now, and these people from, you know... 30 miles away are coming and saying that no, this belongs to their town and they're pissed and causing a bunch of violence and asking for the state to protect them. And again, we have to think of the state as the the wealthy class of the New Republic, right? Right, because it's all controlled by the people who own a lot of land and have money. Yeah, and what their interests are essentially. Right. So their interests are to keep this new middle class, what we're going to call a middle class, though would not be that in contemporary terms, this middle class happy. So again, they don't join up with slaves and cause a massive slave and peasant revolt, because that's the other thing we have to keep in mind as we're talking about private property and like the U.S., that's what we have to keep in mind as we're talking about the U.S. state and in the indigenous nations that they're coming into contact with is that this is all, like, keeping... They're trying to keep secure their wealth and their interest that is built on the backs of enslaved African-American people. Like, people directly from Africa, as well as, like, generations of people who have been born on American soil and, like, either within the colony or now in the New Republic. Like, they, the the government of the early Republic has a vested interest in keeping the institution of slavery going. And it's, like, a complicated conflict but like to have any poor white people realize that they have more in like in common with enslaved people than with the wealthy that's really dangerous and so you have to keep like you have to keep the white people right the poor yeah. white people just happy enough to not like help the enslaved class right 
Right. So you need to sort of keep keep those people just like keep them happy yes. enough so they won't have revolution part two. And the other yes, and the other thing that's happening at this time is like right now we've made it into the 19th century. Right. Right, we tend to think of like the revolution as like the well, 1700s, but it's really, really close to yeah. the end of that century. And so you very quickly end up in the 19th century where you have the industrialization of um, like cotton production and like clothing and mercantiles like that. So you, that is really when like these cotton plantations, especially in South Carolina and Georgia, they start making a right. ton of money. And if you look at where Cherokee is and the creek as well, um, there, that land right there coming down from those hills is super important irrigation land for further east and south plantation cotton growing land. And so the super wealthy of Georgia in particular really want this Cherokee land um, in order to reroute rivers to irrigate their plantations. And in further north in North Carolina and Virginia, you have these people, the, the poor white people who are trying to gain access to this real estate market that's happening now, along with super wealthy land speculators who want to make money off of selling land out west, getting the land grants from the government and then selling them for profit out west. And that becomes even more profitable once you really have railroads become a thing. Right, so because like, then you can move people and goods back and forth. You can move people easily. and goods. But also you can speculate on the land the railroad would go on itself. Oh, So there's right. all these financial motivations for getting that land. Right. But, like, there's an indigenous nation there. And that indigenous nation, particularly the Cherokee, do a really, really eloquent job of advocating in european terms for their own nationhood and they make a really clear case in letters from um the cherokee chief john ross that they are a state and what you have happen in the early 19th century cherokee is the introduction of these european ideas and these euro-western ideas to the culture as a way to try and get the United States and the states around them to recognize them as a political body. And that's where the private property really comes into play. Is okay, that... so how do they, sorry, how, how exactly are they going about this then? So what happens is as a way to sort of regulate uh, the indigenous nations and their interactions with the U.S. government, the U.S. sends out what are called Indian agents. 
to all of these various indigenous communities. And the Indian agent is supposed to represent the interest of the indigenous communities and indigenous nations to the U.S. federal government so that those nations don't have to deal with individual states. Right? So it sounds like a great idea. What they were really there to do was to culturally colonize. Okay. Um, They were there to help set up missionary schools and in a much more, like, particularly as we look back from this time, horrifying, violent way, police forces. Right. They would require indigenous men if they wanted to keep claim to land to be cultivating it, which was not something that in Cherokee men did necessarily. Um, That was a big conflict. But also that they had to be cultivating it in a really specific way, in this Western way, and like a fenced in, this is my personal farm. Okay. That up in the highlands of North Carolina, like, isn't super easy to live off of, right? That's really complicated. And they needed to have, like, once you have that, right, private property, you need a police force to enforce the laws of private property, of keeping people off of that property, of keeping them from taking stuff that's growing on that property, you know, the concept right. of, like, stealing corn and stuff is really difficult when the whole community owns and works all of the corn. Right. But now so you have individual no... farms. Someone can come in and take... And so they're, the part of what the Indian agent did in, in Cherokee specifically was to, ha- like, help facilitate setting up a police force. Okay. And these weren't, like, the police forces that we think of now, right? Those are much later into the 19th century, but it was, like, a sort of rough marshalling. Um, okay. And it, it took away the, the power of the whole community to sort of regulate punishment, which was almost never... It existed... Crime and punishment existed in a very different way in a lot of indigenous communities. So it was enforcing all of these rules of essentially national etiquette onto the Cherokee. And a lot of them, the Cherokee accepted, integrated into how they worked. They were created a syllabary in order to have Mm -hmm. the Cherokee language written out, all of these things. And the U.S. state was still essentially like, nah, (laughs) and created a a violent process in the 1830s through which they forcibly removed the Cherokee people from the land, the Appalachia, and moved them to Oklahoma, uh, which is horrifying on so many levels, but doesn't, isn't really part of like the private property, but. Well, I mean, you you can, you can go into it a bit. Um, I mean, it, it is part of how private property became a thing. I mean, you know, you can't get private property without 
removing the people who are already there. Yes. Most people aren't going to just go along with that Yeah, so essentially what you have is that there is a series of legislative and judicial processes that result in essentially no matter what, the indigenous nations are not recognized as nations by the U.S. This is where you have the term domestic nation crop up. Uh, this is then used in Canada as Canada moves west too to um, right especially in like British Columbia where it is like unceded territory in Canada um, yeah they just declare all of these nations to be domestic nations already within the bounds of the United States and that the US federal government can decide what happens within all of those that territory and basically what they do is like these rich people in georgia and south carolina have already been speculating and selling the land within cherokee territory and the government in the 1830s that the jackson government has created this idea of like you know universal white male suffrage that like every white man can be part of the government and can own land has the right to like all of these things um and it would just be too much of a conceptual turnaround to say like well you've already spent all of this money but too bad because it belongs to somebody else already they were like we'll just move everyone you know like that spongebob moment why don't we just take bikini bottom and move it somewhere else except for that hundreds of thousands of people died and culture was irrevocably changed like it was a horrifying undeclared act of war which is the part of this concept that like um a lot of american historians don't talk about because the the Cherokee people if you look at the letters that John Ross and the Cherokee Council are sending to the US government they state very very clearly and very definitively we are a nation we are not part of the US you cannot do anything to us you don't get to make the rules here we make the rules here this is how we own land this is how we own property And the U.S. said, if you're not going to do what we want you to do, too bad, you have to move. And came in and at gunpoint forced people off of the land and into Oklahoma. Which, yeah, that's that's an act of war against a foreign nation. It was undeclared and it was an attack on civilians. So, like, it wasn't just like an... just which is a terrible thing to say but like it wasn't you know comparable i don't know how to say this the way that the u.s talks about especially the cherokee removal is as this like horrifying moment of ethnic cleansing but it was also a act of war and a violent takeover of a foreign nation in order to sell people land right 
Yeah, so it's it's much more than Yeah, and this becomes the system that they that the US state and the Canadian state use as they move west, but it becomes even more systematic and precise with the creation of railroads, with the um, homesteading, all these things where the the US state uses the idea of private property to put white people places and then to defend them and remove indigenous people from their land and to create conventions within the American legal system to say that they have done this legally. Right, and then that sets precedents for that to be yeah allowed to be done over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, essentially what, like, my takeaway, because this is also a lot of what I did my master's project on, my takeaway from all of this has been that the modern states of North America were created to protect wealthy people's land ownership and their exploitation of everyone else. Right, I mean... Especially indigenous people, especially enslaved people, but also just anyone who can't own things, you know, can't own property. It is to exploit them and maintain the system of wealth that they created in this late colonial early republic period. Yeah, and I think bringing it back to where we started out, like I think that this is, we can see how this is sort of a, it it is something that starts out, especially in Western Europe as, right, in, in many cases, the a situation where you have people who are violently and forcibly removed from their land um, and then these people end up going to the new world and then in many ways they and their ancestors enact that same violence onto indigenous people and you sort of see how this is a this this idea this concept of private property necessitates this horrific violence towards people yeah and it i mean yeah from its inception it's a a cycle of of exploitation and yeah of exploitation and removal right and and also once people are removed from one once they no longer have access to land they're no longer able to use that land for subsistence purposes and then it becomes much more easy to exploit them yeah because then they have to turn to you for wage labor essentially yeah Yeah, precisely and if you look at the history of the u.s it's been a series of the the wealthy class it's it's a, a constant state of class warfare where you have a wealthy class doing everything it can to protect this these rights that they've created for themselves and these assortments of various like 
alliances of other communities, you know, these subjugated classes joining together to resist against it. You know, you have the, from the beginning of the settler colonial period, you have the indigenous resistance that has continued without abatement since Europeans stepped on indigenous soil, right? Right. That has been a resistance. Um, And later you can see it in sort of a more political way with like the um, American Indian movement. Um, And even like that was in the 1970s. And even now, if you look at the water protectors in the Great Plains in Canada with the Wet'suwet'en, Right. You know, you you see that same resistance is about who has the the right to say this land is theirs. Is it the indigenous community or is it this wealthy corporation? You, but you also see it in the Euro-American sense too with the labor rights movement, with the civil rights movement. All of these things are about who has access to resources. And who gets to control those resources and private property? The concept of private property has, since it arrived on North American shores, been about ex- exploitation. Because right. it was people who didn't necessarily... I mean, if you look at, at Georgia specifically, it was a penal colony for people who had committed crimes of poverty and or were in horrifying debt in Europe. And they were sent there essentially to work off that debt for generations like that is a horrifying concept and then you see how that develops into you know the the early american state that then creates a system for removing indigenous people from land to speculate on it in a bizarre market that is like so incredibly difficult to even comprehend because it takes something that is like concrete and immutable land and the food that it produces and the shelter that it provides and turns it into a fungible asset that you can buy and trade and is worth money. Like, it's just, it's so incredibly frustrating. Well, uh, on that cheery <laughs> note, <laughs> I guess this is just, you know, another reminder to everyone to stay healthy, stay safe, wear a mask, uh, donate to your local bail fund if you can, and we will talk to you next week about hopefully something that involves less horrific violence. Hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) We can only hope. But, like, okay, I know you're ending this, but also, like, on a cheery note, it can be undone. Like, the horrors can't be undone, but the system can be undone. That is very true. If you look at it and you see that it didn't always exist, then, like, it doesn't have to exist in the future. And, like, yes, we can't undo the atrocities of colonialism, and we cannot undo the atrocities of the transatlantic slave trade. But we can make sure that people in the future don't have to live with the cycle of trauma that has created through generations right the future doesn't have to look like the past exactly and i think this also is just a 
a, a good thing to remember that, you know, this is something we take for granted that really has only existed for the last, like, few hundred years. Yeah. And that there are lots of ways of managing land in common and that there are still ways people do that today with, like, housing co-ops. Yeah. Um. So, like... It's it's an it's something important to think about how to create a better future. Yeah. So there we go. A cheery note for <laughs> us to leave off on wearing a mask and <laughs> donating to your community funds, mutual aid funds. Right. Support your local co-ops. Just yeah. Go out there and and do do good if you can. <laughs> <laughs> And until next week, we'll say goodbye for now. There was a big high wall there that tried to stop me. The sign was painted, said private property. But on the back side, it didn't say nothing. This land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, and I was strolling And the wheat fields waving And the dust cloud rolling A voice was chanting As the fog was lifting This land was made for you and me This land is your land And this land is my land From California To the New York Island From Redwood Forest Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me.